All right. Good morning. We'll continue today in our study of Galatians, honing in on chapter 6 together. And I'm going to read the text here beginning in verse 6 of chapter 6, and then we will pray. Again, that's Galatians chapter 6, verse 6, and following. Let's read the text together. Let the one who is taught the word share all good things with the one who teaches. Do not be deceived. God is not mocked. For whoever sows, that he will also reap. For the one who sows to his own flesh will from the flesh reap corruption. But the one who sows to the Spirit will from the Spirit reap eternal life. And let us not grow weary of doing good. For in due season, we will reap if we do not give up. So then, as we have opportunity let us do good to everyone, and especially to those who are of the household of faith. Let's pray together. Father God, thank you for the grace you have given this church. And God, as Advent approaches, I pray that the love of Christ will flow from these members. God, may we be filled with the Spirit, as Paul calls us in Galatians 5. May we be people who respond not in law, but in love. And God, may we ever persist in pushing the gospel forward. I pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. Have you ever had the thought, I am struggling to love blank? I am struggling to love fill in the blank with a person's name. Don't, don't say it out loud. I am struggling to love blank. Picture this person in your mind. It drives you crazy that it's so hard to love this person. Wouldn't you be able to love them? Wouldn't you want that? If so, this sermon is for you and the end of the book of Galatians is, in fact, for you. It was around this time, a few years ago, when me and my wife traveled to China to pick up our adoptive daughter, Shiloh. And uh, that was in 2012. She's been a, a blessing to us ever since. And, you know, now she's older. She's eight. And she asked a lot of questions about her origins and the adoptive process, and sometimes she'll ask different questions about her history, and recently, one time, she asked, why did you pick me, right? Why, of all the little girls, did you pick me? She was looking for something about herself that made her feel worthy, and so I'll have conversations with her, and I'll say, well... It was my will, not yours, Shiloh. I had never met you. It wasn't because of something you had done, Shiloh. I'd never even seen you do anything. I didn't know how you would behave. I didn't know you would be so sweet and kind and nice. There's nothing that you did to earn your adoption. I chose to adopt you by the pleasure 
of my will. Now, she has a natural resistance to this idea. doesn't make sense to her because she thinks that she must be worthy of her adoption. Now, of course, this is a picture of the gospel of Jesus Christ. The scriptures teach us that God is a rescuing God and he chooses to rescue you not based on your works or your goodness, but according to the pleasure of his will. He graciously frees you from the trap of thinking that you have to earn his love. You see, that's what grace means. Grace means God gives you what you do not deserve, namely eternal life in Christ. Mercy means God does not give you what you deserve, namely punishment for all the evil that you're both stained with and that you have done. But apart from Christ, people resist this idea and remain enslaved to their own concept of their own self-righteousness. They feel like, I must be righteous myself. And that's not the gospel. Today's truth from today's text is this. Once you're freed from your own personal pursuit of self-rescue through your own goodness, you can put on the righteousness of Christ to love other people. That way you'll be able to move from resisting God's rescuing grace in Christ to persisting in love towards others. From resistance to persistence. And that's what we're going to talk about today. Look with me. Again, we're going to focus on verses 7 and 8 with the idea being resisting grace. So let's look at resistance to grace. We arrive in chapter 6, not in a vacuum, but having labored through all of chapter 5 together. So let's recall what chapter 5 taught us. And here it is in a nutshell. Since Jesus Christ, through his death, satisfied God's wrath against you for your evil, you're not guilty before God. You're not guilty. So you don't have to try to impress him Judicially with your works. He now looks upon you as if you're wearing a Jesus suit. This Halloween, my son wanted to go out and dress up to trick or treat. And so we got him a costume. And what I didn't know was that under the costume, he also put on garments to cover up every inch of skin. So he had a mask for his costume, but he also put a ski mask under that so you couldn't see any of his neck, and then he put his mask on top, which was the evil villain from the Avengers movies, Thanos, right? When I looked at him, because he was covered not only in a costume, but head to toe in socks and ski mask and undergarments, I saw only Thanos. I did not see Sammy anymore. He was completely covered. Likewise, God looks at you and he sees Christ's goodness. So we're freed from having to impress God. He offered his salvation to us, but Jesus paid the cost. 
In that sense, it is free to us. Sometimes I like to go uh, where I live in Garner, and uh, I'll take my kids shopping sometimes or to the shop to get the car fixed, and there's railroad tracks that run in Garner. And when trains aren't coming, not while trains are on it, but when trains are not on it, my kids and I like to walk on the rails, right? And the way it's set up there is you have to be very careful. If you walk on the rails and you fall off to the left, you're going to land on the track and you might sprain an ankle. But if you fall off to the right, you're going to go down a gravel hill and you might skin your knees all up. So you have to stay right on the rail and do the delicate balancing act, never falling off. Grace works like that. There's two sides to fall off of from grace. And we see a couple of them here in the biblical text. You can look with me. The first side to fall off of grace where you resist it, right? The first type of resistance to the grace of God Paul writes about back in chapter 5, verse 1. He says, For freedom, Christ has set us free. Stand firm, therefore, and do not submit again to a yoke of slavery. The slavery in particular is to the idea that you can save yourself. In the ancient Jewish world, their society was flavored by all of the works they could do, all of the law, the ceremonial acts, in particular circumcision. This is what Paul was saying. They were using those laws incorrectly to save themselves. Paul fights against that in Galatians. Today, we may try to do it differently, but there are other self-righteous pursuits. Read the Bible. Be nice to mama. Serve the city. Don't have sex except in marriage. Serve at the homeless shelter. You see how anything can turn into a self-righteous pursuit. Then in verse 4 of chapter 5, Paul says, you're severed, if you, if you think like this, in a self-righteous way, you're severed from Christ. You who would be justified by the law. You've fallen away from Christ grace. You fell off the track of the railroad. It's the concept of grace that you're missing out on. Instead, you're plugging in the concept of self-righteousness. The Christians in Galatia have become resistant to the idea of grace that eternal life in Christ was provided separate from any moralistic work you can do. You can snip out the language again in verse 7. You are running well, says Paul. Who hindered you from obeying the truth? Again, grace is the truth, and you fell off. Who hindered you, he says. You used to be in grace, and now you are not. You resisted. Who messed you up? This week I read a story. I heard about it, and it was about a prisoner who was confined to prison, and he was so sick of it that he decided he was going to break out. And when he made his plan, he noticed that he could get through one wall of his containment 
and it would break into an area where the guards sometimes hung out. And from that place, he could leave the prison because it wasn't as guarded. If the guards weren't in the room, breaking through his wall to get to that area was the quickest way out. And so he decided to do that. He planned it, and then he went for it. And it turns out, as the story goes, the man got stuck halfway through the wall. He literally went through, and he could go no more, and it began to wear on him. So much so, when he got stuck, he began to scream, help, help. And of course, who came? But the guards, they came and got a kick out of it, took some pictures. But you can see how he was trying to escape only to get more stuck than he was in the beginning. And that's a picture of how it is when you try to earn your own salvation. You think in your mind, I've got to do something got to do something to impress God, and you end up getting more stuck. You end up in resistance to God's grace. Paul will have none of it. If you're running well, who stopped you? Run well again. I said there was two sides to fall off of the grace track. Here's the second one. Here's the idea. You realize, oh, salvation is not performance-based? Okay, so what I'll do is I will underperform from now on, right? I don't have to save myself by being nice or holy. Okay, then I'll do neither. Verse 5 in Galatians, sorry, chapter 5, verse 13, says this. Don't use your freedom... That is the idea of free grace. Don't use that as an opportunity for the flesh. Instead, through love, serve one another. Did you get that? Just because you were saved solely by the grace of God through faith in Jesus Christ does not give you the liberty to fulfill all of your fleshly desires. Instead, Jesus said, love God Love your neighbor. Paul will go on then to list works of the flesh. Envy, divisions, fits of anger, sexual immorality, etc. And this is thematically where we pick up on today's passage. Chapter 6, verse 7. Paul circles back to that argument and he says, Don't be deceived, that is, those of you who are presuming upon the grace of God and you're now living an unloving life because you think, eh, it doesn't matter anymore. God saves by grace. Here's what Paul says, verse 7, do not be deceived. God is not mocked. For whatever one sows, that he will also reap. Verse 8, for the one who sows to his own flesh will from the flesh reap corruption. But the one who sows to the Spirit will from the Spirit reap eternal life. Here's the idea. This summer I planted in a little planter outside my house enough ingredients to make some salsa, okay? I wanted to make salsa and I thought it'd be really cool if I could grow everything that I wanted to go in there uh, besides cilantro, but I went for it. I grew some uh, different peppers and some onions 
and uh, also the tomatoes. And so here's what happened. The tomatoes came in kind of so-so. The cayenne peppers took off. They were still producing into November, loaded down with peppers. The onions failed. Not one single onion came up. Had to be the bulbs. Could not have been the planter as the problem there. But I had the thought, right, as I was harvesting all of these cayenne peppers, I had the thought, man, wouldn't it be nice if just a few onions were to come from those cayenne pepper plants because they're so healthy. Tomatoes are so-so. Onions are not blooming, but these cayennes are coming in. And only I had four onions from these plants. Then I would be set. But that never happened, right? Pepper seed don't grow no onions. And so it is with the matters of the soul. If you give in to your debased desires, you will yield corruption and destruction on yourself. But if you strive to live empowered by the Spirit to do the will of Christ, you will be given the eternal life of God Himself. Now here's the point. Resisting God's grace by taking advantage of His kindness through immoral and idolatrous living mocks the justice of God. We see that in verse 7. God is not mocked. You see at the cross, God's justice is satisfied by Jesus' sacrificial death. God declares, I know my people are guilty, but I'm going to pour my wrath out on Jesus as a substitute. This is holy justice. Because my wrath is satisfied completely. Now what should our reaction to that be? Our reaction should be to treasure Christ. Who is both the priest and the sacrificial animal in this transaction. And we should love him and treasure him. And seek to obey his commands to love everyone. Paul writes elsewhere in Romans 12 verse 1. This is how we should react to the cross, to grace, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. That's what worship is. You respond to grace by presenting yourself as a sacrifice to God. Galatians 5, verse 14. Paul will echo Jesus more clearly when he says, for the whole law is fulfilled in one word. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. Failing to love your neighbor fails to lead to eternal life. So I want to make an application here. How do you know when you're resisting the grace of God in your own life? How do you know when you're sowing or reaping corruption? Well, check out the list. Galatians 5, verse 19. Paul says, now the works of the flesh are evident. All right? They're not hidden. They're evident. You should be able to see it in yourself. 
or others will see it. What are they? Sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and things like these. I warn you, says Paul, I, as I have warned you before, those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. So here's a tip. Read the list in prayer to God and ask Him to reveal these things in your own life. If you're having problems in your relationships, chances are you're a part of the problem. Ask God to show you your weaknesses here. Secondly, go to someone you trust and ask for some instances where they may have seen you resisting God's grace through these fleshly acts. Thirdly, go to someone God has placed in authority over you. Children, youth, that's your parents. Adults, that's your pastors. Humbly ask for guidance. Uh, now realize the dynamics of what's going on here. Okay, Most relational rivalries, dissensions, and envy stem from you putting yourself in the position of judge. You think you deserve better justice than what you're getting. Even sexual immorality and sensuality and drunkenness often flow from a heart that says, in my judgment, I think I deserve better than what I have. In the case of drunkenness, you say, I think I deserve better than the way I've been treated by my wife, by my friends, by my own children. So I'm going to have a few drinks more than normal here because I have a contentment deficit and I need to fill it up. Hopefully you can see how this is mocking God's justice because in God's justice, He says, in Christ, through grace, you're getting way more than you deserve. You're getting all that you need to be content. So respond in love to one another. Any other way is to mock the decree of God and His own justice. Here in Galatians, Paul calls us to move from resistance to God's grace to persistence in showing God's gracious love to others. Galatians 6 verse 9 says this, And let us not grow weary of doing good, for in due season we will reap if we do not give up. So next question. We've talked about resisting God's grace question comes up. Who should we be persistently loving? Okay, who should we be persistently loving? Well, look at verse 6. Paul gives one example. Let the one who is taught the word share all good things with the one who teaches. Here's the main point. Freed by the Spirit, you can now love your leaders. Material care and grace reflect God's care and grace to you. Specifically, Paul is probably speaking to church members 
who are being taught by their elders. Those are the ones who teaches here in verse 6. In other letters in the New Testament, Paul asserts that pastors have a right to get paid. Pat Trailer at Nine Marks Ministry recommends a couple of principles to keep in mind here, considering how much pastors should get paid. He says, first keep in mind that in 1 Timothy 5, Paul instructs the church about caring for certain Christians. In verses 17 through 18, he states, the elders who direct affairs of the church are well worthy of double honor, especially those who work in preaching and teaching. And then Paul will quote Deuteronomy 25, 4, saying, do not muzzle the ox while it is treading out the grain. And also apparently, He's quoting the saying that Jesus recorded in Luke 10, 7. The worker deserves his wages. This seems similar to what Paul means here when he writes, share all good things. Pastors should be fairly compensated. All that is quoting Pat Trailer, And Pat goes on to say this, but also keep in mind that the church should not lavish its pastors with extravagant compensation. Peter directs pastors in this way. Be shepherds of God's flock that is under your care, serving as overseers, not because you must, but because you are willing, as God wants you to be. Not greedy for money, but eager to serve. That's 1 Peter 5, 2. And I could proudly say here at TCC, we have a long track record of generosity. When it comes to finances, you're doing a good job, TCC, in loving your leaders. I can remember over the past 13 years, I've had an insider's perspective here, and our compensation team will come to the pastors with fair offers to the pastors. And for years, I've watched Pastor Sean go back to the compensation team and ask for less money than what's offered. Because he knows that you're loving us well, and we're very very thankful, and I pray that we persist in how well we've loved our leaders. Now let's read the whole passage again as I come up to my third point. Verse 6. Let the one who has taught the word share all good things with the one who teaches. Do not be deceived. God is not mocked for whatever he sows, that will he also reap. For the one who sows to his own flesh will from the flesh reap corruption. But the one who sows to the Spirit will from the Spirit reap eternal life. Verse 9, And let us not grow weary of doing good, for in due season we will reap if we do not give up. And that brings us to our final verse in verse 10. So then, as we have the opportunity let us do good to everyone, and especially to those who are of the household of faith. Here's his main point. Persistent in loving everyone. So we talked about the passage starts with a resistance to God's grace. And then he talked about and urges us onto persistence in loving our leaders. And finally, he extends it to everyone says, be persistent in loving everyone. As we have the opportunity, let us do good to everyone, especially 
to those who are of the household of faith. On a macro level, don't forget that it is the gospel of Jesus Christ through faith alone that frees us up to love everyone. Now we've got to understand how it works, okay? So here's the key point. It is self-righteousness that keeps you from loving others, okay? Before Christ, we're all wallowing in our self-righteousness. Self-righteousness loves to sing the lie that you alone are worthy. In whatever relationship you're in, whatever financial transaction you're in, you will hear a song in your heart that says, I alone am worthy here. I alone am doing good. I am the only righteous person here. The key to moving forward and loving other people is to admit that every drop of righteousness in you comes from God declaring you righteous in Christ and the Spirit coming in and transforming you into the likeness of Christ. Understanding that begins to free your mind and barriers come tumbling down. Put simply, human nature says, hey, I'm pretty good. Much better than that person over there because I did X, but I never did Y. Or they did Y, but they never did X. My wife went shopping this week in the grocery store. It was before the storm. And she was waiting for a parking space. And, you know, what happened was someone else came in and there was this competition for the space that sometimes happened in a crowded lot. And she said the person who pulled in ended up yelling at her, just blah, as sometimes happened when road rage happens. And put yourself in that situation. You're going to have trouble loving the person who's yelling at you. Because you're going to think, I've never yelled at someone over a parking spot. I would never do that. That's not who I am. That way of thinking is actually a barrier to love. You just built a wall in your soul, and at that point, Satan wins. Here's what the gospel insists. It doesn't insist that we are as bad as we could be. But it does insist that all people are on the same love level in a couple of ways. First, we're all stained by sin. And secondly, we're all made in God's image, okay? And if that's true, there can never be barriers between people in these two areas. You can never behave so badly that you are not in the image of God. And you can never behave so holy that you're not stained by sin. So there's a leveling of the playing field here. And that leveling is meant to allow you to love. The gospel of Jesus Christ that says you were unrighteous. All the righteousness you have is from Jesus. That will keep you mentally grounded 
ready to realize I can relate to people in love even if they're treating me badly. The gospel says we're all bad and we're all broken, but we're each a unique reflection of God. Some of us have been declared good and fixed in Jesus. Others haven't, but the playing field is level to love. Broken person to broken person, image bearer to image bearer, the gospel frees us up to love. This allows us to live out verse 10, which says, do good to everyone, especially to the household of faith. Now note, we are free to love all people, especially other believers, but never only other believers. Bible scholar Hans Dieter Betz said this, the universal character of God's redemption corresponds to the universality of the Christian ethical and social responsibility. If God's redemption in Christ is universal, then the Christian community is obliged to disregard all ethnic, national, cultural, social, sexual, even religious distinctions. That's a fancy way of saying we should love everybody. But hear this. You will get weary especially as you target your love to those within the church. I talked to a friend of mine this week who's a pastor in town, and he reached out to me and he said, Hey man, how about Saturday? Me and you get together with our families, and we sit down with a mutual friend. A mutual friend of ours is a wonderful single mother here in the neighborhood, and we both love her. And he said, Hey, let's just take Saturday morning, let's get together. And let's just let's just pray and let's meet with her and let's let's just serve her. And this was the day before it was supposed to storm. And I tell you, I loved that woman. I loved the meeting, but I was wearied about it. It was Saturday. Came in, had to drag the kids over there. It was cold. We were all watching the weather to see if we we're gonna have to cancel church. We loved her that day, but man, it was wearying. I just felt like doing it was one foot down in front of the other. I wasn't sprinting. It was a slog fest forward. It is wearying to love people, in part because it takes time, takes energy, but it's also spiritually wearying because you want to see instant change, and oftentimes wisdom tells us people don't often change right away. And there's always going to be a self-righteous part of you when you're trying to love somebody that says, okay, I can't love them anymore until they do this. They're not changing, so I can't extend love to them. I've got a right to be mad at them and act in an unliving way. Sometimes in loving people, you will feel like quitting. But as Winston Churchill once said, wars are never won by evacuation. All right, wars are not won by evacuation. So how do we keep fighting? Well, Pastor Chuck Swindoll used to say this. The only time that Jesus ever used the word easy was when he referred to a yoke. This points us to Matthew 11, verse 28, where Jesus says, Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. 
Not rest from loving people, but rest to enable you to love people. Rest in Christ, sweet as can be. Take my yoke upon you. Learn from me. What do you think he meant by learn from me? Look at me as people persecuted me. I continued to love. The thief on the cross, I loved him. Roman soldier, I loved him. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart. That's what God wants from you in love. There's a gentleness and a lowliness of heart that should be present in your love for others, especially within the household of faith. Do this, and you will find rest for your souls. Again, he's not saying, I will press the pause button and you won't have to love people anymore. He's saying, I will give you soul rest. Rest for your soul. For my yoke is easy, and my burden is light. It's simple and yet profound. You must come to Jesus Cast your cares upon Him. Relate to Him. Cling to Him. Know Him and worship Him and obey His commands and treasure Christ if you want to love one another persistently. I was chatting with that same pastor friend and we were talking about the weariness of love. And he told me these words of wisdom. He said, you know, when you feel weary in loving people, You need to look at the promises of God because they will happen. You can trust in the promises of God, but even more so because some of those promises won't come true until the future. Right now, you must relish the person of God. You must be in the Spirit and appreciate all who Jesus is and all that He has done for you. You must come to Him as you are weary and heavy laden, and he will give you rest. In that one verse alone, you see the intimate coming and relational nature of your faith, and you also see a promise. The promise that he will give you rest. As I read this passage this week, I thought a lot about persistence. I thought about how can I motivate people to do it? Especially if I fail in my own heart, my own life. How can I motivate others to continue to persist? At some point I was struck by the simple eloquence of Psalm 62. I hear Psalm 62 echoed in Galatians 6. So I'd like to read it to you. And I'd like to close with these words. From Psalm 62. Beginning in verse 5 of that psalm. The psalmist writes. Yes. My soul. Find rest in God. My hope. Comes from him. Truly he is my rock and my salvation. He is my fortress. I will not be shaken. My salvation. And my honor. Depends on God. He is my mighty rock. He is my refuge. 
Verse 8 says, Trust in him at all times, you people. Pour out your hearts to him, for God is our refuge. One thing God has spoken, two things I have heard. Power belongs to you, God. You hear Galatians there? Grace to save people. All of that belongs to you, God. Not their own righteousness, but power belongs to you, God. And verse 12 of Psalm 62. And with you, Lord, is unfailing love. And you reward everyone according to what they have done. Unfailing love is wrapped up in God Himself. We must persist in understanding the concept of grace, fleeing from our self-righteousness if we are going to tap in what the psalmist calls unfailing love of God. And as we tap into that and experience it, we can shoot it out to others, others in our world and especially to the household of faith. Let's pray together. Father, you are mighty. You are our rock. You are our refuge. I pray that by your spirit we would trust in you at all times. And these people at Treasuring Christ Church who are hurting, may they pour your hearts out to you. You're our refuge. Power belongs to you. God, we want to experience the unfailing love of you towards us in Jesus Christ. And we want to be brought in to the magical, mystical, Trinitarian love that we don't even understand. But you've given us access to it. How you love the Son and you love the Spirit. They love each other. They love you back. And that pure love is what we want for each other. So I ask that you give it. So that in turmoil, in suffering, in conflict, in matters of injustice, we would love one another as a reflection of Jesus Christ. May we all treasure him together. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.